weekend tonight we're going to continue our conversation about house church one of the first things we're going to talk about is what to call this should we even use the word church but if you remember our last conversation we just talked about some reasons for adopting this model and posing this model then over and against a what we might call an institutional church model in which buildings and structure and hierarchy tend to become kind of self-perpetuating purposes in which it's often the case that the very notion of koinonia or you know the idea of the fellowship is somehow made a secondary part of what we would call church. And so with the house church model, what we've talked about is that there is a, a degree, a depth of unity that can be had of a like-mindedness and of a kind of immediate formation of a community. And so tonight we, we wanted to talk about, and it is night for us, I don't know when you might be listening to this, uh, some more ideas connected with this. And Frank, jump in here in terms of what, what is the problem of using the word church? Well, the word church has baggage, right? Uh, I think in previous generations and earlier in our history, in our country, I think that the word church was something that was kind of reverenced and brought about the idea of perhaps a certain level of holiness. But I think today for my generation and, and the generations after me, it means something more like self-righteous, smug, backwards, boring, irrelevant, you know, ritualistic, ignorant, those kinds of things. But the problem is, though, that other words, things that might be more literal translations of the New Testament language, like assembly or meeting or gathering, those also sound archaic or cultic. So you kind of have this conundrum of there's the convenience of the word church that at least people know you're talking about some kind of intentional meeting that's religious in nature. So you're kind of stuck with that. But, you know, maybe it's a compromise. So you, so you go ahead and stick with the word church. But so then you have the choice of what are you going to call it, house church or home church or whatever. And the thing with uh, house church is I think that kind of puts emphasis on the building type, that somehow the house is better than some other type of building, whether it be uh, an actual church building or a some kind of multi-purpose facility that you're renting or uh, have access to. Whereas I think the term home church kind of puts emphasis on the people that make the home the home. You know, not that that's the best term or whatever, but I think when I was having this conversation with some others involved in it, that's kind of the conclusion we were left with is the best term we could come up with that would be succinct and understandable, but also not as loaded down as, as some other traditional terms. Yeah, and I think, isn't it the case that any time that two or three are gathered together, that Christ is there in our midst, and that's what constitutes, you know, what we've referred to as church. Uh, but And so maybe the, the word... I don't know whether to abandon the word or, or not, I, but certainly with your generation and perhaps a, a younger generation, the picture is then not so much, you know, even though we all know that it doesn't refer to the building, and yet the institutionalization of it, the sheer boredom of it, the kind of, you know, rather than warm feelings of fellowship, what people get is enduring long soliloquies concerned with religion. 
And so I, I know that there's been a shift in perception with the millennial generation that, in fact, that whatever this the, the meeting is, it does not seem to address people's loneliness. In other words, if you had to uh, say, what, what is it that plagues people? Uh, what is it that, you know, gives rise? Literally, there have been studies done of, you know, heart disease and other diseases that loneliness then is literally sickening. It makes us sick. And so whatever it is that we call this meeting, it should be then the cure for our alienation, our isolation, or our loneliness. And so maybe home or family or fellowship gets at that. Certainly the idea of, of uh, in, interpersonal uh, relations, which uh, when we say the word church, I'm not sure the first thing we think of is interpersonal relations. Yeah, and I, I'm absolutely all for a better term if anybody has any ideas on that. I'm more than happy to continue that conversation. That was just the best that my lack of creativity could get to. Going back to something you said earlier as far as like what makes the church event or the assembly or whatever you want to call it, what makes it it, you know, where two or three are gathered or or what. I think, you know, what at least what we've been talking about last week or uh in the last podcast on this topic and then what we're continuing today, you know, this particular kind of meeting, it's not just that there there's several Christians gathered together, because that can happen anywhere. It's that they're gathered together with a very specific purpose, right, to do these specific things. So it's kind of the practice that makes it what it is, which is, I think, why we've had this whole conversation, because the institutional system that has developed seems to you know, fail to meet those objectives and fails to actually enact those practices in a meaningful way. Yeah, good, good point and well taken that, that what it means for two or three to be gathered together is not two to three gathered together to talk about football or, you know, sports or other, other things, but that the image then of being together is that those things that might be entertainments for us are not really what draw us together into a unified fellowship. And I'm thinking here, you know, that the irony is that with church as a formal structure, as we often have it, that there is no room for the kind of dialogue, an unfolding dialogue, that makes for a deep friendship and fellowship that I think that you and I and others connected with plowshares have, have experienced, that is that it's hard for me to say when we're doing this thing or we're not doing it, because it seems that when we're together, that the, the, the continual conversation then is about Christ and about Christ being there. And that it is a, you know, if you think of the two on the road to Emmaus, that there is the idea that you know, the burning the idea of one's of recognition of the presence of someone in the terms of the two on the road to Emmaus. They know they, they recognize him. They just can't quite put their finger on it. And so I think that the picture then of this group meeting together is that what draws them together is not any formal structure, is not a hierarchy, uh, it certainly is inclusive of the practices, 
but part of these practices, the practices are not simply formal practices, but then they are practices that become integrated into one's entire life. Yeah, I think much like a right understanding of what Levitical law was trying to explain, it's full of practices that in and of themselves were worthless and perhaps even destructive, but if understood rightly, the lesson was how to reconcile with your neighbor and how that pleases God and how that's necessary for a relationship with God. And yeah, so I think, yeah, the practices are important, but it's not just in and of themselves. It's because of what they're actually meant to do, you know, and the practices we've talked about, right, have been this deep teaching and study, deep prayer, the fellowship meal being together in that way with that intentional interaction. Uh, And then we're going to talk about more about uh, confession and some other things. So yeah, the, the, the practices, it's not that they have, they're not mystical things that have power in themselves, but rather they're, they're just things that are designed to, I guess, work with human nature to achieve the goal of that close communion. And so you're putting into this, and I know I, we've just started First John here, and I, I noticed that one of the signs of those who would be integrated into a fellowship is the willingness to confess their sins. And so John, I, I think, connects that to maintaining the unity of love. Tell me what you're thinking of. What is the significance of, that you found with confession? Well, it's, it's hard to quantify. <laughs> we, we've done it a few different ways. But I, you know, before I, I get into that, I just want to say, I think it's something that I would like to explore much more. My understanding... Uh, my research into it is is far from adequate, just because in the context of being in a Protestant church, confession is pretty much de-emphasized outside of a completely private in your own head event that you really don't even. And you know, even if you're following a Calvinist understanding, you don't have to do it at all. It's the you're forgiven before you even confess. You know, and so kind of that background, I really haven't had the experience and the you know the research. Well, I think this is this is sort of like C.S. Lewis, you know, when he's writing his book on, or it's always his book on the problem of pain. He wanted to publish it anonymously because people he thought would ridicule the entire idea if they knew who the writer was that, you know. <laughs> and so, so maybe we could at least get the ideal out yeah. there and say, yeah, yeah. well, we may not be doing it, yeah, uh, but at least we could picture it. Yeah, yeah. So we practiced it a little bit. And uh, what we did, uh, just in the particular context of our house church, it was mostly college students, right? Slightly more than half male. Towards the end, towards the end of our time there, we, we had a much more eclectic and balanced group. But at the beginning, I think it was more, much more heavily uh, male than female. And because of that, the vast majority of things that needed to be confessed tended to be sexual issues. <laughs> And so we ended up kind of segregating a little bit just to prevent some awkwardness in that way. Mm-hmm. But what we found, you know, and I, I'd say this, this is something we were trying to work out and learn as we were going. But because, you know, we all, we all partook in the various confessions, it kind of helps establish an equality among each other. And what we found is that, you know, once that thing is out in the open in the group, then you know throughout the rest of the week that as you're encountering this person again and again what they're having trouble with. Mm-hmm. It kind of opens those doors of accountability and encouragement. And 
I think you would have something to say about this, uh, and that is the way that just shame functions, mm -hmm. that it has a self-binding nature, that the shame of the sin that you're stuck in causes you to continue to repeat it as long as you are continuing to hide it and engage in pride. So maybe you want to take over for a second on why it might be beneficial. Well, I, I was thinking actually of you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They instituted confession in the community at Finkenwald, and he writes about it in Life Together. But the way that he did it uh, was not necessarily through a group confession. And they were all, as far as I know, they were all men. I don't know that there were even women in the in the seminary there. But then, as soon as they began the seminary, he, and in fact, they all paired up with someone who they felt especially close to or someone they can trust. And Bonhoeffer then uh, paired up with Bethke, and of course Bethke becomes his lifelong friend, becomes the executor of his manuscripts, and is really the person who, because of Bethke, we know of, of Bonhoeffer. And so their relationship becomes very a very profound and deep relationship. And so maybe the idea of that sort of private, not necessarily that you're hiding from the group, but everybody knows that, that you are confessing to one another. And so what tends to happen with something like shame and pride, which I always just take as working on an axis, that our, our tendency is as long as we have this facade that, you know, this is who we are, we don't ever let the facade down, that we, that, that is a way of sort of protecting yourself from the shame that would come, you know, the picture in the wisdom literature is that pride comes before a fall, pride comes before shame. And so the resolution, ironically, is the the undoing of the very structure, the construct of pride and hiddenness. And confession, I would think, directly addresses the delusion or the deception that is inherent to sin, but also specifically to pride. So that there is a humility that makes us vulnerable, and it's in our very position of being vulnerable, that we, we open ourselves not just to being hurt by other people, but also being experiencing the sort of profound love that experienced between Bonhoeffer and Bethke, but then you could go back through the history of beginning in the New Testament. So that I think that authentic community it, the only way it's going to begin is to get rid of the, the facade that it, it often is attached to institutional church. What we often, what often happens in, in institutionalization is that sell this product or we want to make it look like this thing really works. You know, it's sort of like you take a sip of Coca-Cola and you says, yes, this is it. And everybody says, yes, this is it. And nobody can say, but wait a minute, this is just colored sugar water. And so sometimes I think in trying to make the gospel something that in fact it is never meant to be, that is that, oh, we pretend like we have no sin. John says, well, then you're a liar, you're deceived. And so 
that becomes the place at which true fellowship and the gospel can do the work that it is meant to do. Yeah, it's very important that we are being freed from the slavery to sin, but that's a process. You know, whether we're talking about Abraham or David, you know, examples we have in the Old Testament, it's a process. And you can see their righteousness increasing over time. They understand better and they grow as people over time. The reason that it's possible, you know, I think perhaps David is is clearest in this example when he killed one of his closest uh, soldiers for his wife, you know, and Nathan the prophet comes in and says, you're the man, mm-hmm. and he breaks down and weeps, you know, that it's, it's it being willing to admit, you can't change it if you're, if you're still stuck with pride and trying to mm-hmm. deny it. Uh, there's a, sh- my wife and I like to watch this show, uh, Kitchen Nightmares, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. It's this world famous chef, Gordon Ramsay goes around and tries to save restaurants that are failing. And it's basically a twofold. One is, he'll eat their food and then observe the way they run a restaurant and then basically tell them everything they're doing wrong. And after he does that, then he puts some money into it, you know, does some renovation, gives them a new menu, and then sets them back on their own. But what happens pretty much every episode is that the owner or the head chef or whoever, they'll say, oh, the food is great. Eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. But uh, I don't know why people aren't coming in. And it's always the food. It's always the food. The food is always terrible. I mean, it's why people don't go to a restaurant, you know? Yeah. But I think we're the same way all the time, and that's just human nature. And so this confession is is the way that we uh, can set aside that pride and have the hope for change, at least. And that's why I think James says, you know, confess your sins that you may be healed. And what you were saying earlier, you know, you went through the example of Bonhoeffer it being private versus group thing. I think it's actually kind of interesting because I've done a little bit of research this week on what it's been in, say, Orthodox and Catholic churches, because there are churches that have emphasized it, you know, since the beginning. And I did a little bit of research on on at least the, the Latin church. And what's interesting is from the beginning in the early church, it was a public event. And then after the Roman Empire broke up, confession as a practice was taken up by monastics. And it was a very private event, one-on-one and there would usually be a lot of physical contact, whether it was embracing or whatever, uh, laying on of hands and praying and stuff like that. And it, it worked its way back into the normative church practice. By AD 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council declared that it was mandatory to go to a private confession once a year and confess all sin. Otherwise, it was a mortal offense if you failed to do that. And then in the 16th century... That's when they developed the confessional box, and and that was a response to problems of uh, sexual abuse or seduction between the parishioner and the confessors, because they had this very private environment, and so the box was just to keep them apart. And in the turn of the 20th, 20th century, then, we had Pius X, who required confession weekly, and he reduced the age of confession to seven years. Prior to that, it was, you know, about 13 or even older. And so, and this is a lot of times people say this is what was a key part of what led to all the scandals that we've had recently uh, in the Catholic Church. But the crazy thing is, so, you know, it, it's, it's had this huge change and, you know, adaptation over the years. So even though the, re- the requirement is that it's practiced weekly, the Catholic Church estimates that the current attendance to confession is about 2%. So, you know, for being something that's mandatory, it's really not being done. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things we can learn from that history. And and that one is, 
you know, that isolation, you need to be really careful about that. I do think there's a, a value to it not being a huge group, but maybe there's there's time for both, you know, because I think when it's something that is an offense against the whole church, in Corinthians, right, an example where everybody knows what's happening, and it's more if he has to admit that it's wrong, there's lots of examples where it should be public. I, mean, I think generally speaking, yeah, just in small numbers or, or even one-on-one, that, that's probably generally more effective. But even then, like, I think being careful about the isolation and what kind of circumstances that puts you in is, is really important. The other is that, you know, let's not trivialize it. Having a seven-year-old confess, I mean, what really is the level of understanding of what sin is? Not going to be that effective. And then it shouldn't be a purely interior experience, which as I was reading the literature and how to prepare for a confession, that's definitely what I found. The act of contrition and the emotional thing about it is the primary focus, it seems, in, in most of those examples. Whereas I think the kind of confession we're talking about is more like the subject of Leviticus, that being, you know, let's really reconcile with our neighbors. It's not, the penance doesn't do God any good. The point of the confession is, to right the wrongs and to undo the shame. Confession, it's so neglected and, you know, in, uh, on the side of our perhaps Protestant traditions and, and even the Catholic and Orthodox churches that have always practiced it, it seems like it's not being done very effectively. So I think it's really key to talk about it and figure out how we can really practice this well. But I think as far as cautionary things, this is why in our assembly, when we gather together, it's really key that this is for baptized, committed Christians, right? Because you're not going to be able to confess to people that you can't trust. In the Latin church, I think the Orthodox too, the priests are bound by pain of death to keep secret anything, any confessions they've heard. (laughs) No, that's kind of the level of seriousness that we need to take about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're we're here to protect each other, not hurt each other. And so when somebody comes into an assembly and they want to confess, I think that the expectation is they can trust the people there, that their shame is not going to be made worse. It's going to be lifted and resolved in that confession. Yeah, this is, the, I think this is a key point. Now, this is Stephen Pattison writes the book on shame, and he does a survey of all the literature that is there in Christianity and ironically, that the people that are focused on writing on shame are not uh, in psychoanalysis or psychology are not Christians, but tend to be secular psychologists. So he's doing a survey, and you know what he notes is that in this literature, I think he cites two exceptions, that they're talking about shame as if it's the problem that other people have. Right. And in a sense, that's the picture that you get in church, that we all pretend that sin or shame is, yeah, we know some sinners. Yeah. I, I mean, no one would ever articulate it that way, but that's sort of the attitude that church is where you get all cleaned up and make a presentation. Yep. The whole thing is geared toward a kind of presentation, a kind of artifice and that artifice that you see in the front then infects the entire place. And so Patterson's point is that church as we have it, in fact, induces shame into people. And of course, the more shame you're creating, the more alienation and isolation. 
so that church, ironically, as institutionalized church, that it can function to, to do just the opposite of what it is meant to do. And that is, I think, that in a fellowship, that what is exposed there is precisely the universal predicament, the universal problems. You know, I think that most of us in our neuroses and our various little little problems we have, that we imagine this is our private problem, and that's why we want to keep it hidden, because it's something that makes us peculiar, and, you know, we, we would want to hide it. And of course, what you encounter in the New Testament, and, and I think what we should encounter in a fellowship is, well, no, actually, those things that you think are most peculiar and shameful about yourself are, in fact, the universal sin predicament. And so there is that kind of relief of recognizing if it's a universal problem, then you can begin to talk about the sense in which Christ delivers us from that problem. In other words, uh, there's nothing about you, even your most private self. It's not, in fact, unique to you. That may seem strange to us that we often think that our little neuroses and psychoses and sin are, in fact, the thing that make us uniquely individual. And in a strange way, we get attached to the disease because we confuse, we imagine that the disease is part of our identity. And we miss the fact that, no, actually the disease is not unique to you. It's not what gives you your personality. That's the thing that can be diagnosed. This is, you know, Freud, uh, he gets bored with neurosis because it all looks the same. And so, (laughs) ironically, that's the thing about sin is that once we share it, once we expose it, we recognize, oh, that's not me. That's not who I really am. But this is uh, so universal that it can be diagnosed and has been diagnosed in the New Testament. Yeah, uh, I think my time as a student when I was an RA, I definitely had that disillusionment understanding that everybody's just messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Even Christians. Yeah, yeah. And this shouldn't shock us that, you know, this was true in Japan, that in every little church that I was ever in, that this was precisely the place that people with mental health issues, people who are truly, you know, outcasts in the society, they often show up in church in Japan. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be a shocker to us. No, that's, that's sort of what church does. It's precisely for the outcast. The people that say, I'm okay, you're okay, uh, they probably don't need Christianity. I mean, they're not okay, they just don't know it yet. But people who know it, they're the ones that we should expect to show up. Yeah, and on that note, that's kind of adding to the list of cautions that we had last week. My experience definitely has been that, you know, there's a certain personality type that tends to be attracted especially to house church. That is, one, the complainers and the gripers (laughs) that like to cause division Mm -hmm. tend to be attracted because they're thinking generally, at least in my experience, it's that, the problems that they have with the institutional church just won't exist in a home church, and they find out people are still people, even in home church. 
but not before they've caused a lot of trouble <laughs> for the group. And then just like you're saying, the outcasts, right? People with poor social skills, people have problems that want you to fix them for them. And then others controlling leader types or cult starters. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of attracted. And I think the point of the church is to address people's problems. But I think when we encounter that, like we have to understand or help the people coming to understand that repairing and healing is not something that can be done for you. It's something that you have to work with on both ends. And I think probably one of the most difficult things that we've had to deal with in our house churches is the relational issues, which isn't surprising because that's kind of the the focus of having community is relations. But I think having a little bit of discernment and wisdom about people and and the nature of people uh, is Mm -hmm. definitely helpful for the the elders or the leaders in the in the church to just kind of be aware of that and know how to how to address people about those problems i think because our tendency because of our history in in an institutional church is if we recognize that we don't talk about it we pretend it doesn't exist and maybe it'll go away or we can just ignore it mm-hmm. but you can't do that when relationship is the primary focus and and i think that's why a lot of house churches that start end up dissolving mm-hmm rather quickly. I I think that, let me state something here on the positive side of this, that, you know, it may be that people show up in a a small group like this that, in fact, are not really capable of normal human interaction, you know, Uh, that we're going to have all sorts of people that may have mental health issues or they may have, uh, they may be in some ways have special needs. But I think that what can take place in a small group is that these people nonetheless enjoy the warmth of the fellowship and the love that is available to them there, perhaps without being able to reciprocate it. At least they can enter into that fellowship. And whereas I think that if the point of the church, you know, or the institutional church, that it often becomes that even if it's not a health and wealth gospel, it's kind of a the idea that, you know, we're made successful in some way by Christ. But, well, no, actually, that people that may have issues of special needs in terms of autism or bipolar disease or other diseases that may not find a welcome in the institutional church, or if the game is everybody has to pretend like I'm okay, you're okay, well, they know they're not okay. But I think that what happens in a home church setting is that it's okay not to be okay, that we'll love you anyway. And maybe you can't bring very much to the table, but that's okay because you're a child of God and we recognize that. Yeah, I should probably clarify what what I was addressing was more of the people of sound mind, but ill-intended heart. Yes, I understood (laughs) that, yes. Yeah, yeah. I just I want to clarify that. People with malicious intent were, say, Paul would have written, this caused me much harm, you know? Right, right. I guess getting back to the confessioners a little bit more, one of the things to avoid for sure is not to make it a pity party where everybody kind of enjoys feeling sorry for themselves or kind of has a sense of just becoming okay with all the sin that's around mm-hmm. them as it's being confessed. Right, right. Because, I mean, the point of it is to be overcoming sin, resolving shame brought on by something, not and, and, and especially reconciling with people who have been harmed with it, not just being okay with sin. So that's something to be careful with. 
And the, the picture that uh, I think, again, that we have in the New Testament is that you, know, you want to be very careful in all of these things. You know, the, uh, obviously, as you, as you described, that human sexuality is going to be a key factor in this and in some way that you can actually create a kind of degenerative atmosphere, yes. I think, is yeah. what you're describing. Yeah, that's yeah. That was much better put. <laughs> yeah. So we may not quite have a full handle on this, and maybe we're describing and saying, "Okay, here's the goal." But I think that's the first step in a home church kind of setting: the presumptuousness, the arrogance, the pride, the just the sheer venality that you encounter in so much of evangelical Christianity. Hopefully you can just, that pretense can be done away with. And the quickest way to do it is just to say, well, this is not a place for people to, in some way, use the church as a stepping stone for success in society or culture. But (laughs) this is a place for people who, in fact, have given up. In other words, when we talk about being outcasts, in a a sense, that's the picture of all Christians. It should be that, oh no, well, actually we've checked out, that we're not playing the game anymore, and Christianity is not some means to an end within the culture. Yeah, like Paul says, if if Christ hasn't risen, we are the most pitied of all people. (laughs) It's obviously so important in the New Testament and in the early church, and it's just something we've kind of lost, and recovering it and having this conversation and trying to figure out how to make this work is really important. And tied to it is disciplinary action, which is something, again, I don't know much about. I've never actually had to enact this. There, There is clear in the letters a point where because some sin is happening with someone that is destructive and divisive and just that degenerative atmosphere that you're talking about in the church, there's a point where something has to be done. And this is, you know, whether it's excommunication or whatever, something has to be done to prevent the whole church from going down with that person who's choosing to continue to live in that sin and be okay with that. And, you know, the purpose of it, as is expressed by Jesus and James, is not to cut that person off. The purpose is to reconcile them to bring them back. And that's, you know, what happened between 1st and 2nd Corinthians is that person was excommunicated and then came back and reconciled. But, you know, I just want to point out kind of in passing, you know, that quote from Jesus that we always like to say, where two or three are gathered, there I am. You know, that's actually an echo of the Levitical law, you know, where you have the testimony of several witnesses representing God's position. So when you're accusing somebody, the plurality of witnesses speaks on God's behalf as to whether you know they, they stand accused or not. And even where Jesus said it in Matthew, that was when he was talking about how to deal with people who have sinned against oh. you. You know, not to say that the principle doesn't work outside of that circumstance, but where that particular quote originated was in that context. And so obviously, it's important to deal with these issues that are causing harm in the church. You know, a huge part of Christianity is turning the other cheek and being willing to suffering at the expense of the other. You know, Paul even says, you know, why are you suing each other? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? But there is also a point where it's just, it needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. when it creates that degenerative environment. And so it's just something that I think house churches in particular need to consider 
how they're going to address those kinds of issues if they pop up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what those kinds of issues would be. I think primarily it tends to be sexual, but it can also be other things like uh, violence or abuse or, or whatever, mm-hmm. divisiveness, lots of things that could, that could create a degenerative environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, I must say that I, I, uh, we've had <laughs> a fairly uh, uh, happy and healthy beginning here. Uh, of course, I come from long experience in Japan, in which we have had to, in, in some way, figure out what to do with people that are just blatant, you know, violators of ethics and sin and and it's never, I don't know that there is a singular or an easy way to do this other than, well, you do confront it. And which in Japan, of course, is already an odd thing to do because yeah. the last thing you do is confront people. Yep. And yet at some point, even in that culture, there is the need, especially for blatant ethical violations. You just have to say, well, this is wrong, and figure it out from there. And part of the problem, maybe, in a local community of believers like this is that, of course, you don't necessarily have the— and I, but I would say this is true of any—that's just the multiplicity of churches today. Well, if you in some way discipline someone in the way that the church at Corinth did, well, the guy would just go down to the church down the road, you know, it's not— a big deal. Yeah. Yep. So that sort of discipline, <laughs> yeah. other than uh, being in some way excommunicated from a local fellowship, it's a nearly an impossibility to exercise, of course, across the board. But certainly you have to do it to for the survival of a local church or local fellowship. Yeah. I think really most people excommunicate themselves when they don't like the environment. <laughs> Yeah, they'll just go somewhere else. You know, that's the feeling I'm getting from the New Testament, and we've talked about this, is the heretics are not the ones that get kicked out. The heretics are the ones who would kick everybody else out. You know, it's not the early church excommunicated so much as the the heretics, the the Gnostics. They, in fact, excommunicated, the, you know, they they separated themselves out. The very notion of heresy, you know, of the Gnostic heresy, is that, well, in some way we're special. We have special knowledge that gives us access to God, and you don't have that. And so they're exclusive almost by definition. So that that sort of false teaching, I I think it just tends to be separating and alienating by its very nature. I don't know that You know, if you have a solid group of like-minded believers and someone should come in with this notion, they may find that kind of fellowship isn't for them, that they'll be the first, as you're saying, to exclude themselves. Yeah. I think there's one more thing I wanted to talk about briefly, and that was with teaching. There is one other thing I wanted to say. In the institutional church, what we have typically is segregation of education mm-hmm. based on age, very similar to what you get in a public school system. And I think that that is really probably one of the most dangerous things in the church, just because you know, in the church, aren't we supposed to be respecting each other? Aren't we supposed to be looking up to one another to have that relationship between the young and the old where 
we're modeling behavior and mm-hmm. you know learning from wisdom and, and all that kind of thing. And I think having classes and even the worship services for separate age groups just to cater to the different interests, one, it, it devalues the capability of the young and it gives them less opportunity to get to know and, and see the value of their elders. There was one institutional church that began this practice of trying to integrate the classroom for the Bible studies, and they had phenomenal success with it. Now, what they would do, you know, they had a a teacher, a leader, and they would break up the whole congregation into tables, uh, round tables. And at each round table, they would have a a large mix of ages, from senior citizens to middle-aged to young adults to teenagers and little kids. They would mix them up so it wasn't all the same family. And what they would do is they'd have short teaching lecture segments, and then they'd have material at the table to work with, questions and, and whatnot. And as a group, each table would work on the questions and discuss with one another. And so what you had is a combination of the older helping teach the younger and explaining it, which, as you know, we all know, teaching someone else is the best way to remember and understand something yourself. Because if you can't explain it, you probably don't understand it yourself. But also that process, it really forces it through your brain and gets it to fixate. So it's really valuable in that sense. And and also, like you were saying, what we're trying to learn really is how to talk about God. Well, this is how you do it. And uh, But then also the older people can learn to respect the younger because they have, you know, insights and ideas and understanding. And so it just really builds that unity. And so then... After a certain period of time, the tables would report back to the teacher. You know, they'd pick a table to answer this question, a table to answer that question. It just really was really successful. Their attendance for that study went up. The relationships in the church grew much stronger. And I think in the house church, I mean, first of all, we probably only have one round table worth of people anyway. But that opportunity is there to really engage all the different ages. And I think as much as you and I like to dominate a conversation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's certainly value to having an experienced teacher doing the teaching. And I think that's probably what you had mostly happening in the New Testament church. Uh, anyway, but the idea that that engagement is not just possible, but encouraged and perhaps even required, you know, that we can really engage everybody right down to, you know, the youngest age capable of having a basic conversation. Obviously, there's there's some point, I don't know, whether that's five years or seven years, you know, there's some point where just little kids are just going to play. But, you know, that we should really try to cultivate that kind of closeness and teaching all different ages together. Is there, are you thinking that there may be a particular harm that is done in an institutionalization where there is a separation into age groups, that uh, there's resources that are or even an outright harm that may be done? Well, I think it's definitely, yeah, the resource is an issue, but I think harm, definitely harm. Uh, Because I think when you have, say, in a classroom, say, 20 or 30, you have your peers, and then the teacher is not your peer. So the people that you associate with are only your peers, and everybody else is the outside group. I think that's the classroom mentality that that you tend to have in a normal school classroom setting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're doing that in the church, too. And so much like, uh, you know, I think most students, when they're sitting in classroom, they kind of, you know, the teachers, the, not, not, you know, the bad guy or whatever, not that they, not, not all students hate their teachers, but 
generally speaking, you know, the peers want to have fun together mm-hmm. when the teacher's not looking or we, you know, we talk about how outdated his clothing is or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a separation because the teacher is not your peer. Right. Whereas right. in the integrated setting, every age category is your peer. Your peers because you're all Christians. Your peer is because you're studying this together. There's not the opportunity for segregation based simply on age. Well, uh, we're going to put a lot of youth ministers out of work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm saying that uh, I've had questions from a former student that, in fact, that is his work. And he's raised this precise issue. And what you're describing is, I think, the, the realization that that we've done harm to people in the whole, perhaps in the public school system, the way that we segregate out, uh, you know, that what you're describing is in the old one-room school is that the, you know, the the children interacted in a variety of age groups and then always had had a model there of the next step, you know, the next older child. And so what happens, I think, in, again, Uh, the institutionalization of this is that a typical youth minister is pretty good, you know, like you're describing with real young children. But even even kids uh, at a pretty early age get real bored uh, if they are not exposed to things that maybe they can't completely apprehend or things that in some way there is held out for them something else to attain. But when it is the drivel and trivia and game playing that becomes the focus of, you know, your activity, what I see happening in among adults with boredom and, you know, passing through the back door, oh, they're prepared for that as children because, yeah, that sort of, you know, thin engagement, I think, ultimately is not going to, first of all, disciple anyone and probably won't hold their attention into high school and beyond. Oh, yeah. No matter how good your sermon or your class is, just uh, next week, ask somebody, what did you say last week? They're not going to remember. And, you know, I've actually been reading a lot on how the memory works and learning some memory tips and just techniques of how how to keep things retained in your long-term memory or the medium-term memory, as this one guy is coining a couple different techniques. And as I was reading these books, one thing that kind of stood out to me is that really what the brain remembers fits along very well with the fact that the Bible is mostly narrative. It's, it's having experiences that you can visualize with all of your senses that really triggers your brain to remember things. And that's why in a lot of these memory techniques, like you'll picture a car and then you'll have each part of the car, like you walk around and you remember, okay, this is here and this is there. So you can go back later and, and visualize the car and remember all the things that you put around the car. And you can memorize things almost instantly using techniques like that. And so to the point with the children, my, my little kid, he's uh, going to be three soon. So we were watching a movie a couple days ago, The Incredibles. And uh, in there, there's the character Dash. He can run really fast. And uh, he was watching it. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he's running and he's running so fast that he runs across the water. And he jumps up and he points. He's like, he's running on the water. He's running on the water. You know, <laughs> he's not even three. You know, he picked up that. Hey, that's not something anybody can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, 
And so, yeah, the kids very young can pick up on things yeah. like that. And, and maybe the problem for both the adults who can't remember what we're talking about and the little kids who don't get what we're talking about, maybe we're not making full use of the narrative that we have in Scripture, right? I mean, how, how was Scripture taught? How was the catechism formed? Uh, and I think narrative played a key part in that. And so maybe part of you know, one of the many methods or techniques we could utilize is that we're taking large chunks of narrative text, you know, whatever, whether it's acted out or te- retell the story in their own way, you know, they each tell a part of the story. I think, you know, things like that are going to really help engage the young because you have to know the Bible before you can make abstract connections to different things. Richard Hayes wouldn't be able to talk about echoes of the New Testament if he didn't know the, the stories in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so even if the children don't understand the full implications of all these different things theologically, just knowing the stories has a huge amount of value. And I, and I think that most adults probably don't know it well enough so that the practice of retelling the story to their kids will be very beneficial for them as well. So a full, yeah, what you're describing then, the full engagement of the human imagination, a holistic engagement, uh, that should capture us, you know, from the time that we we're children. The stories then, maybe the story, you know, everybody can understand the story. And the meaning of the story, it may evolve. We may see it from, from different perspectives and with different depth. You know, sort of the, the, as we're engaging John, that's the fascinating thing about John, is that it's often pictured as an easy part of the New Testament. Well, not really. It's, it's really some of the deepest stuff, and yet the deepest thing is not necessarily removed from us, that it is accessible. Yeah. We can all come and we can understand the stories, and if that, in fact, is what's happening, if, if we're fully engaged at an imaginative level. Yeah. Frank, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm glad that we've been able to do this. Have we covered what you wanted to say about home church? Uh, yeah, I think we have. And you know, there's always more that we're, we're all going to be learning in. But, uh, you know, for right now, I don't, I don't see a part three. But who knows what will happen in the future. Okay. Well, we, uh, we do have our discussion about communion. And uh, I think the next time you and I talk, that it will be the next part in uh, our discussion of communion, which, of course, is very much connected to this topic. All right, Frank, good talking.